long way to go It's dark all over The moon's starting to glow Gotta stay awake No matter what I do Wanna see my girl When the night is through I'm driving on And I gotta be strong And it won't be long I'm driving on She'll be waiting For me to pull in I'll be so happy To let love begin I've been away Couldn't get home Now I'm ready Been too long gone I'm driving on And I gotta be strong And it won't be long I'm driving on Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Foghat and their new single driving on from their new album, Sonic Mojo. And I've got founding member of Foghat, Roger Earl, here today on the Strange Brew, drummer extraordinaire, and we'll be talking about his fantastic career in music from Foghat, Savoy Brown and much more. So let's hear my chat with Roger. Hello. Hello. Jason, it's a great name. They were all heroes, weren't they? Ah, right, yeah, but the Argonauts. <laughs> yeah, there you are. 
it's a hero name. My mum and dad called me Roger. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. It's been a good day. We're promoting your album. Sonic Mojo. I've heard some uh, tracks off it and I've been mighty pleased. Yeah. Uh, Driving On, I think, was the first one, wasn't it? So it got a real blues rock feel. And that's is that sort of a purple vinyl. It looks wonderful. Yeah, it's kind of a purple thing. <laughs> Everybody has black records. We figured we'd have purple, blue ones. Black and purple and blue. That's Maybe we'll have a red one next time. You must be pleased with the album because it has got that very distinctive Foghat sound and Driving On is a, a great example, that real classic blues rock groove on it. Yeah, Kim Simmons wrote the first two. She's a little bit of everything. Kim Simmons wrote those for us. When we were about three years ago, we uh, released an album called Under the Influence, our last studio album that Tom Hambridge produced. And um, Kim Simmons came down and played on like about four of the tracks. And after we'd finished doing the mixing and putting the final touches on it. Uh, we were down in Nashville and uh, Kim said, you know, I'd really like to write some songs for Fogcat. I said, that would be great. I said, but you have to play on it. And he laughed because Kim and I always got on really well. I mean, I met Kim what, in 67, his first real job in a band that I had. We always got on really well. Musically, there was never, in fact, I don't ever remember us ever having a harsh word between each other it was always good and then in 76 1976 we reconnected again and uh, we stayed in touch ever since he would get up and sit in with us about 10 years ago our agency on the west coast paradise artists started booking savoy brown so we did a number of shows together which was uh it was really cool you know we could get up and jam and hang out together Kim didn't drink anymore, which meant that there was more for the rest of us. <laughs> Some of us get sensible in our old age. But uh, anyway, Kim sent us, sent me three basic tracks. Four, actually sent me four songs about, about three, three years ago, right in the middle of um, COVID nightmare. We actually recorded three of them. He sent me the, his vocals, guitar, and I think it was like to a click track or something. There, so it was obviously needed some work on it but the basic songs and of course kim's guitar playing was absolutely fantastic but um he got ill started getting ill about a year and a half two years ago and his last record that he put out cd uh for savoy brown he was just playing slide guitar because his fingers weren't working and he passed this last uh december so he obviously didn't get to play on the record as uh we wanted but i think we did a Good job on three of the tracks that we uh, played. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have been pleased about it. But um, I miss him already. He was a great, great blues guitar player and um, a really good songwriter. He, I mean, he put a record out every year, usually with Folkhead. It takes us get a studio record about every three or four years. It's not a race anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I'm really pleased with the new album. It sums up a lot of how we want to play, how we see stuff. It touches on a lot of like American music, obviously blues and rock and roll, but there's some stuff in there that's like a tinge of gospel in it. And maybe uh, I've got to tell you this. When I was growing up, I lived in Southwest London in, in Hounslow and my older brother, Colin, had a whole bunch of uh, stuff from the Sun record label, early Jerry D. Lewis and the Johnny Cash songs. So I'm sort of 12, 13 years old, riding my bike to school, singing Johnny Cash songs. Well, she loves you, big river, more than me. 
even though he didn't have a drummer, I loved Johnny Cash's music because there was always a story. There was always this really cool like rhythm going through it, and uh, there was a story. So that was my introduction to music: Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and then I discovered Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker. There was no holding me back after that. <laughs> mix of original tracks as well as um, some covers on there so it's 50 50 between the two yeah it is actually every record we we usually find a couple of tunes that we think we can ruin <laughs> <laughs> no i mean you know i grew up i mean Foghat is based in the blues and rock and roll and r&b and maybe a bit of country as well so when we start sort of rehearsing or recording we'll often like just play some songs our singer scott holt will just start singing something and we start playing and because we have our own studio down in the land in florida and we tape some of it 
and most of it and then after like about a couple of years we figure it's about time to sort of get serious and put a record together then we start looking at what we've actually done and start getting serious about it all of a sudden we go I didn't know we did that neither did I and then Brian Bassett our lead and slide guitar player and he's also our chief engineer and producer finds stuff that we've done like years ago and we don't remember it so if they worked then we put them on the record we actually probably had 10 or more recordings left over from this record but we tried to pick what we feel is um, our best efforts and what we really enjoyed if you know if we want to get up and dance or uh, start singing along with it we figured it's going to make it I don't appreciate you. That's the whole band contributed to that, didn't they, in terms of the writing? I actually came up with the title and the original lyrics for it. We all write, everybody writes in the band. And uh, I gave it to Scott, Scott Holt, and uh, he took it in another direction. I basically wrote it about an ex-manager who, uh, as far as I was concerned, didn't do right by the band, us, and certainly in the end, thieving bastard. Anyway, uh, and Scott took it to another level where I think anybody who listens to the song, there must have been somebody or nasty piece of work in your life that you could. It's sort of, how did Scott describe it? It's the most polite, rude record you've ever heard. I don't appreciate the way you walk. I don't appreciate the way you talk. I don't appreciate your self-entitled attitude. I don't appreciate you. Also, at the time, he was. Uh, he has a record store down in Columbia, Tennessee, and at the time he was getting into the Sex Pistols. Well, I went through that era, great band. The Attitude, it's only rock and roll, but we like it. He decided that it needed more of a punky version, so that's fine. I'm an old punker anyway. <laughs> There's at least one of the tracks that your brother Colin's on, because he's been on a few of your records and obviously notable in his own right. Yeah, Colin. Um is four years older than me. He's my older brother, good older brother, I might add, as well. And, of course, um, he became famous with the, as the keyboard player in Mungo Jerry, along with my first bandmate, Ray Dorset. Ray Dorset was the lead singer in the first band I was in when I was, what, 16 or 17, called The Tramps. The bass player in The Tramps, Dave Hutchins, was my best friend from uh, school. And uh, I guess they didn't think much of their drummer, and I got invited. And Ray... I and Dave played together for what since until I was about 19 till I joined uh, Savoy Brown and then Ray formed Mungo Jerry with Colin and that's another story they had enormous hits yeah in fact I talked to uh, Ray I was there this past summer for a week and I just called him up to just see if we could get together that didn't happen uh, my granddaughter in England Ruby got married so in Wallingford, which was part of my old stamping grounds. And uh, so it was fun. I got to see a lot of old friends and musicians that I played with when I was a kid. So uh, actually, I'm still a kid. I refuse to grow up. I don't want to hang up my rock and roll shoes. <laughs> Self-entitled attitude and 
How did you get involved with Savoy Brown then? Myself, Ray Dorsett and Dave Hutchins had a band that was after the Tramps, I forget what we were called, something. But we weren't getting a lot of dates and things were sort of slowing down a little bit. And I saw an ad in the Melody Maker for uh, a blues band wanting a bass player and a drummer. So myself and Dave Hutchins went along. Uh, We didn't get the job the first time, but about a month later, I got a phone call from Savoy Brown's manager, Harry Simmons, who was also a booking agent at the time of the the agency that I worked with. And I went again. I borrowed my dad's car, took my drums up to the Nags Head in Battersea, I think it was, carted them upstairs. I was uh, My day job, I was a commercial artist in London. So uh, we played for about two hours, two and a half hours, something like that. And then... I started packing up the drums and taking them back downstairs. And they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to work. I have a day job. And they said, "Uh, well, we're going to Birmingham tonight. (laughs) That was my uh, introduction to Savoy Brown. I had a really good time playing in that band. It was a lot of fun. Chris Jordan, the lead singer, one of the main songwriters, had a great voice. I think probably one of the best English blues voices ever. Uh, Lonesome Dave was an absolute gas to play with, as was Kim, great guitar player, and, and we became really good friends over the years. No, it was uh, I learned a lot playing in that band, and actually probably had too much fun from time to time. <laughs> Never heard of such a thing. Train to Norway is one of the definitive songs of the era. Do you remember recording that? That was one of the first songs that I played with them. What I recall from that, Mike Vernon, the producer, was. Really a great producer, really cool guy. And like basically he would just set up the mics and say, that's really good. Or no, don't do that. Train to Nowhere was, um, Chris obviously wrote that. And um, it started off like with Kim playing the picking thing. But um, I put timpanis on it, Ass's Jawbone, Maracas, Congas. I played with brushes, I believe, and I overdubbed symbols so i was like that was really the cool thing with savoy brown they would write the song and like play it to me and then i just played drums it was ne- nobody ever turned around and said no don't do that it was yeah it was a lot of fun playing in that band i uh, have very fond memories of everybody playing it and the gigs uh yeah we probably did have too much fun <laughs> Pass you by 
mentioned the gigs there's uh, some recordings of when you uh, came over to the states there's certainly a segment of one show that you did in uh, cincinnati in 1917 it's got tracks like uh, i'm tired do you remember coming over for the first few times with savoy brown to the u.s yeah it was great i remember the first tour the 19 i believe it was 69 we came to new york got off the plane i think they kept Chris for a couple of hours. They wanted to inspect every orifice on his <laughs> for some reason. 
and the rest of us sat in limousines putting the electric windows up and down. Then we got into New York City. We got our equipment. We were given uh, new Marshall amps, and I was given a new uh, Ludwig drum kit. And I think the first date we did was actually in Boston. We played at the Boston Tea Party. Now, Shavoy Brown was opening up, uh, and on the bill was the Jay Giles band. They were on next, and Buddy Guy was closing the show. We played, I think, about 45 minutes or an hour. Then we saw Jay Giles. We went, whoa, we've got a long way to go. <laughs> they were fantastic. They were a great band. And, of course, Buddy Guy got up there and just absolutely blew the doors off the place. And the next morning, Jay and uh, Peter Wolf came to our hotel and took Kim and uh, Lonesome Dave out to all the local record stores. And we did a number of dates with Jay Giles after that. But when we left Savoy Brown and formed Fogcap, we started doing a lot of dates with the Jay Giles band. I think one of the best bands that's ever come out of the States. They were incredibly tight and a great sounding band. What's the term? Tighter than a duck's ass, and that's watertight. <laughs> and uh, I've also got to meet Buddy Guy a number of times. Um, I was a presenter at the Memphis Blues Awards a couple of times, and I got to present to uh, Buddy Guy. And uh, I think he won everything that night, best guitar player, best uh, singer, best new song. I think my co-presenter said, does he play piano? He'd probably win that as well. But I don't think Buddy... Uh, entered that realm our singer scott holt was uh played with buddy guy for 10 years he was the other guitar player in the band so you know he can play <laughs> Thank you. 
to be surrounding me. I'm of living up to what people expect me to be. You know that some people are different that way that I cry shame. Now wouldn't it be a real drag if we were all the same? I'm not going to try to leave. Thank you. So for the formation of Fogcat, was it just that you guys wanted to move things on and do something different? Yeah, Tony Stevens got fired. Myself and Dave decided to leave the next morning where we had breakfast with Harry Simmons, the band's manager, and we explained that we were going to leave, but we'd stay as long as Kim wanted us to till he got a new band together. Kim wanted a change as well. We, Like I said, we always got on well, but um, sometimes you just know that it's time for a change. Um, We'd made one album with Dave singing and we did one live, half a live album with Dave singing. And uh, Harry Simmons actually uh, held good on his word that he would stop myself and Dave from working in England. We were originally with uh, Chrysalis Agency, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright. And uh, in fact, I went to see them at their house uh, in, uh, what was it, Woking or somewhere? Because we wanted to get some some work. And they said, no, we can't because Harry threatened to take Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack away from him. What a scumbag, excuse me. But anyway, oh, all is okay now. <laughs> but, you know, it was unnecessary. It was totally unnecessary. It's about music. It's, you know, it was, we were never a threat to Savoy Brown. It was just, I don't know, some people have just got a mean streak in them. And the sound of that first album, obviously the classic track off that is I Just Want to Make Love to You. But um, going over to Rockfield with the great Dave Edmonds as well. Yeah, um, that record wouldn't, uh, and in fact, our success wouldn't have been anything near as what it has been. Dave Edmonds transformed um, us from a, an average blues rock and roll band into something special, I think. He's an absolute genius as far as an engineer and recording, great guitar player and singer. His arrangements and the way he records, 
Yeah, I, I have very fond memories of working with Dave. What happened was uh, I'd booked time in Wales once we got our record deal with Bearsville Records. Albert Grossman sent me about $10,000, and then I booked time at Rockfield. Dave Edmonds would have the night shift, and we had the day shift. And um, it would cross over a little bit, and Dave Edmonds would hear some of our stuff, and we would hang around and listen to what Dave was doing. Um, once we listened to some of Dave's renditions of his stuff, we realized we had a long way to go. <laughs> we didn't really have the goods to make a great sounding record. So our manager at the time, Tony Otida, an American guy, talked to Dave and said, look, you think maybe you could produce uh, Fog Hat? Dave said, yeah, but uh, first I've got to finish my own record, which he did. And about, I think probably two or three weeks later, Dave started working with us and all of a sudden, the magic dust started to drop on us. <laughs> you know, Dave is somebody really special. Great musician. There's very few like him. I can't think of anybody I could compare him to. He's very unique. His attitude to playing, his attitude to music, the way he turns like classic blues or R&B or rock songs into like his own. That's, that's real genius, I think.
following through hard work touring the trackios road fever on your rock and roll album typifies that we sort of determined to go over to the states and really slog it and play dates and take it to the people yeah you know i grew up listening to american music rock and roll blues you know jerry d lewis little richard chuck berry discovered muddy waters john lee hooker etc etc i mean that's what i grew up listening to and that's what formulated i think you know, my playing style, I used to play along with those records and their drummers, you know, Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis's drummer was something else. Little Richard's drummer, um, his name, Earl Palmer and uh, Chuck Berry's drummer, like with chess records, um, Freddie Bilo. That's how I learned to play. For me, my playing style is all about listening to the song, playing for the music. Now and again, you know, I do a drum solo and have some fun, make some noise, kick bash and like, brrr, but the best part is like playing for the song. So I've been fortunate, I think, understanding that. I never had people saying, don't play that there. <laughs> <laughs> playing everywhere and anywhere, it hones your chops. And uh, I love playing. Playing live is great. Uh, I was, in fact, we just played, where did we play somewhere the other day? And after the show, we were sitting backstage, we were having a glass of wine. I was sitting there talking with Scott Holt and he said, how many jobs can you have that when you finish working, a bunch of people start clapping and cheering for you? <laughs> I know how fortunate I am, you know, playing in this band and playing with the people that I play with. So uh, I'm going to roll till I'm old and rock till I drop. That's from Road Feeder, isn't it? Right.
And you mentioned about Dave Edmonds taking an old song and, and making its own, but you guys did that with Honey Hush on your Energized album, Radical Departure. Uh, well, actually, it was Dave's idea. That was Dave's idea because um, Dave had obviously Big Joe Turner's version and uh, Johnny Bunnett and the Rock and Roll Trio's version. And I think we got like a, a crossbreed of those two. That's a day was a walking encyclopedia of all things rock and roll, blues, and R and B. He knew actually, I think he was a closet drummer because he knew every single drummer that played on these records. I mean, he educated me about some of them and said, Who played on that? And he'd tell me, I go, oh, okay. But that that's how that came about. So I just want to make love to you came about. Actually, the basic way we were playing, we played I Just Wanna Make Love to You was when Dave and I and Tony Stevens were in Savoy Brown, we would do sound checks and sometimes Kim would be come later and uh, Dave would play a version similar to that, sort of like a da-da-da-da-da. It would be like um, like a John Lee Hooker thing played straight instead of like a shuffle. Uh, and then, of course, we got Rob Price and everything improved. <laughs> the Fall for the City album, I've read that was the first album where you stepped back a little bit and took more time on the album and it, and it shows. Yeah, um, the first album, obviously, we spent a long time working with, you know, with Dave Edmonds. But after that, once we had a degree of success in the States, we were touring. And like, we'd do a week or two somewhere in a studio. We had very little time off. I mean, I, th I think it had, it had a lot to do with our initial success in the States because we were playing everywhere. Bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, people's backyards, <laughs> any hellhole that would have us. We would play it, that, literally. And, um, you know, we wanted to play. We still do. But uh, it's a little bit more organised now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how we cut our teeth, playing everywhere and jamming. We always had permission to jam with this band. In fact, a lot, even to this day, working out songs when we get in, the, in our studio down in Florida, we just sit there and just play. Uh, Scott, uh, lead singer and guitar player, would start playing something and we join in or we sometimes we sit down acoustically and you know get some grooves together and then turn everything on what can i tell you i love my job it's not a job <laughs> slow ride is one of those definitive it's a standard in the world of rock now were you, were you aware that you were really on to something good when you, you heard that for the first time no no uh, you know again it, it came from a jam uh, nick jameson had just joined the band Nick and I were friends. Uh, I lived up in Woodstock at the time. But Rod Price and myself had a, a house down on Long Island that we'd had the basement soundproofed. And when Nick joined the band, or I asked him if he wanted to join, he said, yeah. <laughs> we drove down to Long Island, and one of the first songs we did was uh, Slow Ride. It started with a jam. Dave had the lyrics, some lyrics. We just started a jam, which is basically a a John Lee Hooker riff, but played in like 4-4 four, four instead of a shuffle. And Nick Jameson arranged everything and said, let's cut this out. And then he pointed to me and said, this is after we played it a couple of times. He said, just go bang, Rod. And I said, what do you mean? He said, just go bang. And that, uh, that was the start of it. Yeah, Nick was um, Nick was a lot of fun to work with and play with. A fantastic musician and funny 
he's absolutely hilarious. He's actually uh, he does stand up comedy. He also plays every every instrument under the sun. He works. He's worked in film. Does voiceovers. I probably learned more from if there was a single person I've learned a lot from. It's Nick. That when you're in the studio, what to do, what not to do. More importantly, enjoy every little bit of it. It's like um, it's work. You know, you have to think about what you're doing and get it right. But it's all about enjoying. You know, uh, the moment, and, and that's what music is. It's like a, a moment in time. And uh, you've got to know when to say, that's it, or maybe we should do it again.
Bokat album Night Shift is a fantastically sounds great, especially the drums as well. The production on that, what was the process to get the sound on that record? We first started uh, recording out here before we went to, we went over to Connecticut to record. We did some recording. We rented a, a pork store out here on Long Island and we rented the RCA mobile unit and started working on that. I think the uh, basic tracks for Take Me to the River and I'll Be Standing By were done there. But um, it wasn't working and we had a different producer at the time. But I, to be honest, I don't think we quite had all the material down. Rod and Dave were like struggling to write. You know, it's uh, coming up with really strong material is um, not easy, especially when most of the time you're on the road, traveling here, there and everywhere. Then we went over to a studio, Dan Hartman's studio in Connecticut. And that was uh, a really fantastic sounding room. And Dan Hartman's a great musician and uh, producer as well. And uh, the only trouble we had with that record again was a number of the songs weren't finished. So myself and the bass player, Craig McGregor, my brother by a different mother, a lot of the songs we played to a click track, which was something, I mean, I could, I can play to a click track, but it's not as much fun as playing. <laughs> you have to work, but it's okay. You know, I took lessons when I was very young, but we had to sort of, Dave would sit in the studio, the, myself and the bass player, Craig McGregor, were in the main room. So it's he and I, and we had cans on to a click. Once we figured out the tempo of the song, Dave would sit in there with his playing an acoustic version, electric guitar, and he would say, lead guitar solo, chorus, verse. And it was kind of, that was work. But you're right, the actual sound of the record and the feel on the record, I think really came off. And that was work. That was when I think Craig and I realized that we were real musicians, you know, you had to sort of work. It didn't just flow easily. But, um, yeah, I'm very proud of that record, proud of just about everything we've ever done. In fact, there's nothing that I've, we've actually recorded that I don't think um, we gave it our best shot. And you've got to have fun with it. You've got to be willing to, like, you know, step outside and, like, try some different stuff. Whether it works or not, you have to decide. But that's one of the joys of making music. You can, like, you can play with it. You can have fun with it.
you also did that in the early 80s. You talk about a change in sound, but your sound was kind of a bit more crisper or drier. And I Do Just What I Want was a, a great example of that, where you, you shifted and, and moved things on. Yeah, uh, that that was Dave's idea. Was it, um, was it James Brown? James Brown, thank you. How could I forget James Brown? I saw him a couple of times. Whoa, he was something else. I mean, that's brave, doing a James Brown song. Oh, I don't think so. But we changed it so much that it wasn't even like close. I think Dave told me who we got. He got the idea from, I think, another English band, to be honest with you, the way they played it. But I can't remember who it was. Do Just What I Want was, you know, it was a rock and roll song. And I mean, we took a song and then tore it apart and put it back together. In fact, maybe we should do that. Do Just What I Want. Tell everybody in the neighborhood, I want a party, want a party good. I don't care what the people don't allow. I'm going to have a good time. Any old house. All right. Tonight, I do just what I want. Ba-da-da-da-da. Yeah. 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 We had a good time on that one. Uh, so by the mid 80s, was it just time to take a break? Well, what happened was uh, we did um, a record deal was up with our last record that we did with Nick Jameson. He produced it rather. And our Lonesome Dave, myself, and Kenny Aronson did some demos down in Atlanta with a producer called Eddie Offutt. Uh, we did about six songs and we gave it to our manager to try and get a new record deal. Apparently, he couldn't get one. Dave decided he was going to move back to England, which came as a bit of a surprise to me. We finished our tour at the time and my wife at the time said, you know, Dave and Linda are going back to England. And I said, no. <laughs> so um, about a month later, Dave moved back to England. And see, 84, he came back in... About 89, I think, he came back to the States. You know, sometimes you just, you know, I think Dave wanted to take a break. I carried on playing. Um, I put a band back together, and then it ended up with three quarters of Foghat anyway. We had a keyboard player for a while, and then we got a lead singer, and we had another lead singer, and we started recording. Uh, we, would do, we were doing, we called ourselves... The Knee Tremblers. <laughs> uh, that was interesting, explaining the title to people. And we would, about half our set was like podcast songs, and the other half was blues, R&B, rock and roll songs, and stuff that we'd be, we were, you, uh, were recording at the time. And um, we did a Christmas song. We did a, a video that was on MTV, Going Home for Christmas. I just kept my hand in. Then Dave came back in 89. We arm wrestled, arm wrestled around the country for a couple of years. Then I convinced him to put the original band back together and uh, everything was uh, buried the hatchet, not in each other's heads. <laughs> Just 
sadly, much of the band have passed away. But with the current lineup, you guys are playing as well as ever. Thank you. Yeah, Scott Holt, I met him back in 2014. Everybody in the band has a stand-in. I have got a couple of drummers. Uh, Bobby Rondinelli has sat in for me, like one time when I broke my back. Instead of cancelling the shows, everybody misses out, uh, you know, especially the promoters because it costs them money to put on shows and advertise and the fans. So we needed a stand-in for our lead singer, who was Charlie Hume at the time. And uh, Scott Holt was recommended by a photographer friend of ours. And Scott learned a bunch of folk hat tunes. He came down to the studio. Uh, this is when Craig McGregor was still alive. And um, we played for about an hour and a half. And we said, well, when Charlie doesn't want to do it anymore or can't make it, you'll be the person. Well, there was a couple of times Charlie didn't make it because he was on holiday, holiday hewn. And uh, Scott played. And then, uh, was it two years ago? Charlie sent a text to our manager and said, I'm retiring three days before we were about to start rehearsals for the upcoming touring season. I wish him well. I haven't heard from him since then. But I also think when you turn around and say, I'm retiring, I don't think that's an easy thing to say or even to acknowledge uh, to anybody. So on that score, the fact that he didn't call me and talk to me, we were, I mean, we played in the same band for 20 odd years. I forgive him. <laughs> but at the time it was like, whoa. But it's worked out great. Scott is a fantastic singer, a great guitar player. And I'm probably having the time of my life playing with this band. Brian Bassett, our lead and slide guitar player, he's been with us, what, 26, 27 years. Great guitar player, a fabulous human being. But just as importantly, he's also a brilliant recording engineer and producer. Ah, everybody works in this band. We've all got two jobs. <laughs> I'm having the time of my life playing with these guys is great. I think you get a little bit of the idea of how much fun we're having for the record. But the real fun is like live shows. You know, that's that's where we get everything. That's where we get charged. It's um, uh, like, you know, what other job can you have where you finished working and people start clapping and cheering? <laughs> yeah, life is good. And uh Foghat is actually we really want to come to uh, Europe, especially England. I mean, it's where I grew up. So uh, we haven't played there since that three week tour we did with Captain Beefheart back in the day. Basically, we've never played there. So any agents out there, clubs, um, festivals, festivals, especially, but anywhere, we'd love to come and play. Hopefully this summer we'll be able to come over. That would be good. Just a final song I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned the album earlier is Under the Influence. and you do a brilliant version of Heard It Through the Grapevine. Where did the idea for that come along? Um, Charlie and I were in the studio, and it was just Charlie and myself. I started playing, and Charlie started singing and playing guitar. That's where it came from. Like I said, lots of our songs come from when we just start jamming. And uh, Charlie had a great voice, and uh, I thought it worked. So then we put guitar and bass on and something else. That was it. That's why it was on there, because a lot of our stuff comes from just saying, what do you want to do next? Da -da, da -da, you know, it's, um, it's music. Well, thank you so much, Roger. I've loved listening to um, Sonic Mojo, and uh, hopefully we can get you guys over to Europe one more time. I would love to do that. Uh, we played um, 
Sweden Rock two or three times, I think. We did a show in Germany and one in Belgium about four years ago. And we were booked at a festival down in um, Kent, a Rambling Man festival. But then it got cancelled because of COVID twice and then the third year. But apparently they're doing another, another concert there this year. So maybe we can get on that. That would be good. Yeah. I would love to come back and play in my homeland. But this is my adopted home, and I'm very happy here. This is a land of music. You know, growing up as a kid, all the music I listened to was American music. And over the years, I've got had a chance to sort of play and meet a lot of my musical heroes. And uh, I love working here. I love playing here. I love living here. But I want to come back to the old country and let them know that we're still here and kicking. Fantastic. There'll be plenty listening uh, back in the UK to you and including the new material on Sonic Mojo. Thank you so much, Roger. It's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure, Jason. You take care, man. Thank you. All right, then. Bye-bye. Bye. Would you be?
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.